0: Hello, welcome. My name is Neha Vasakha and I'm happy to invite you to the first episode of the podcast series, The Feminist City. This is hosted by Vidi Center for Legal Policy. And in this podcast, we hope to think about cities, our relationship with the city and exclusions in the city. In the course of the series, what we hope to do is engage with the big, the small and the mundane details that go into what makes cities are homes, what makes cities accessible to us, and what makes cities hostile to us. In the first episode, before I get into why it's important to look at cities from a feminist perspective itself, what I'd like to do is start with an anecdote. A couple of months ago, a tweet went viral. Now this is not uncommon, but what was really interesting to me was the topic of it. Half a million people liked a tweet that asked the question to women in the internet what they would do if men were to vanish from the planet for 24 hours. The responses were heartbreaking and quite relatable because 16 women responded, 13 of which said that they'd like to take a walk at night. Something as simple as the act of taking a walk at night, which say half the people in any urban city that you can think of in the world can take for granted, seems almost utopian and unthinkable for the other half. This was because Irrespective of where you are, whether it's an Indian city that you've grown up in or a, a city from a different part of the world, for women in the city, the perception that you know the city being unsafe is something that we all know and experience differently. If you're someone who's lived in a city, there are certain things that you know instinctively. There are certain perceptions of safety. However, right at the outset, I'd like to clarify that these perceptions are highly dependent upon who we are. What are the different identities we carry? And what I mean by that is, are you rich or are you not? Do you have a disability? What your gender is, what your class, caste and religion is? There are a number of factors that go into forming our identity. And based on this identity and where we live in the city, what our cultural background is, we experience the city from that lens. Now, why is this important? Because if you're a woman who's grown up in a city or you have lived in a city, a familiar experience or a familiar notion is navigating for safety in the city. As a young woman growing up in Hyderabad, something that I was very used to was questions about what I was wearing and where I was going every time I stepped out of the house. I know that the minute it's nightfall and maybe the clock is approaching seven, I'm going to get a call from home with concerned questions about where I was, with whom, and how I was planning to get back home. This is my experience about how I navigated the city growing up. But my experience is not going to be your experience. And it's going to be very different based on who you are and what your social identity is. However, what seems to be universal for all women, irrespective of their background, is the notion of the unsafe city. This is very important for us to consider because in their wonderful book, Why Loiter, Shilpa Fatke, Shilpa Ranade and Samira Khan have delved into extraordinary detail about the way in which safety is the fulcrum that moderates a woman's access to the city. If your city is feeling unsafe to you, your ability to access the city, your ability to explore opportunities in the city, whether it is just going for a walk at night to finding a job that you like, in order to be able to travel freely, in order to be able to move about in the city, is severely limited, both by the perception of the lack of safety and by the control at home, at work, wherever your community is, on how this lack of safety is going to be dealt with. The lack of safety severely limits your ability to access the city. However, it's not just safety. If you're a person with disability, the lack of accessible infrastructure might limit your ability to move about. If you're someone cannot afford the most dominant means of transportation in your city, if you don't own a private vehicle, if you live farther away from the closest bus stop or metro station, all of these are things that will limit your access to the city. These examples are merely to illustrate that there are a number of factors that go into limiting your access to the city. Now, if you're a woman or if you're someone who identifies as transgender or non-binary, what you might experience is a compounding disadvantage of not only your gender identity, but any of the other factors that we've discussed before. It's important for us to remember that your gender identity does not operate in a silo. It operates in conjunction with and in the context of these other factors. While any conversation around safety in public spaces for women seem to center around questions of curfews, seem to center around questions of more police presence or surveillance, they often seem to miss the fact that there are enough documented cases of police violence against sex workers, police violence against the transgender community, and police violence against women on the streets themselves. Just because you have more police in the streets doesn't automatically make the cities safer. This is something that we know instinctively, but we seem to keep coming back to these solutions because they seem like the intuitive answers. Security means safety. But that's not necessarily true. What makes the city unsafe? In fact, what makes the city in the first place? In order to answer this question, it'll be really interesting for us to go back and listen to what urban theorists have to tell us. French philosopher and urban theorist, Henri Lafave, tells us that cities are socially produced, but space is socially produced. Cities are not neutral. They don't come out of nowhere. The way that what we see, experience and navigate is a result of thinking and the values of the society that is producing it. To simply break this down in a simple example, I would encourage you to think about what what image conjures up in your mind when you think of the word kitchen. Now, when I think of the word kitchen, what I see is a room in which cooking takes place. The person I see doing the cooking is my mother, because growing up, this is what my experience has been. This might differ for you depending on where you are. Something as simple as this example, there are different components to it. The kitchen is not just a room, which is a geographical location. There is an activity that is taking place, which is the function. There is a person who is doing the work And that is a social role. And in this case, if there is the woman doing the role, it is a domestic gender role. What these tell us is that this activity doesn't come out of nowhere. It is the result of social, economic, historical processes that culminate into this activity that's taking place in this room. Now, think about the city. When we move away from this micro example to the macro example, what? Henry Lefavre is trying to tell us is that it's a complex interaction between different processes. And these are social, political, historic, and economic processes. This is fundamentally important because as we've discussed earlier, our cities are unsafe, but they don't come from nowhere. So if we live in unsafe cities, it means that the society that we live in is producing unsafe cities. And the society that we live in, And how this society is organized becomes very important. So in order to understand what makes the city unsafe, we have to turn a critical eye at the society that we inhabit and ask the question, what is making this society produce unsafe cities, right? This is where a feminist perspective becomes of paramount importance because feminists from times immemorial have been asking these questions about societies and the way societies are organized. They have encouraged us to think about patriarchy. They have encouraged us to think about gender and our binary notions of gender. They have encouraged us to think about the way in which caste, class and religion play into contributing to our everyday life. Uh, What we do when we take this perspective of feminism and take a critical look at cities, we come to an approach called feminist urbanism. Feminist urbanism is nothing but thinking about cities from a feminist perspective. And what does this mean, right? One of the fundamental things that feminists have drawn our attention to are the ways in which society itself is organized based on gender, whether it is whether we're talking about traditional gender roles, where women are supposed to be the caretakers of the domestic sphere, while it is the men who are supposed to go out and earn a living. Now, for some of us listening to this, This might seem as an outmoded and uh, outdated notion, right? Uh, We don't feel like our lives adhere to something like this anymore. However, the important work that feminist geographers and urban planners have done is to draw attention to the ways in which urban planning itself has evolved, and how it has evolved has been with a priority focus on economic development and assumptions that underpin the economic development. When you don't consider the domestic economy, when the domestic sphere itself, you don't plan for it. So the unpaid work that women do, whether it is cooking, cleaning, taking care of children and the caregiving that is is foundational to society is not featured in our thinking about economic and planning for economic development. So the way that we we plan the city does not necessarily also take into account the trips that A housewife is making or the domestic worker who has to take her children out during the day. What these examples uh, tell us is that urban planning in its current form does not center people and feminist urbanism is a simple approach that puts everyday people and their lives and their experiences at the center of planning processes. It is the acknowledgement of the understanding that a young queer migrant laborer coming into Bangalore does not have the same concerns, priorities or experiences that an 80 year old woman who's living alone does. The fact that different people use the city differently is an essentially important facet for us to keep in mind. And how do we go about ensuring that these diverse and very different aspirations are reflected in the planning process? The way to do it is through community participation, with a focus on the locality. Now, planning, or what we hear when we think about planning, are large-scale, city-level decisions, whether it's about zoning industrial areas, whether it is about a huge flyover, or an infrastructure project that you're reading about in the newspaper, without much interest. But, planning has to begin with your neighborhood in mind. It has to extend to the locality and think about the ways in which these localities will now connect with each other based on the needs, the requirements and the aspirations of all the people who live in these places. Now, so far we've discussed what safety in the city means and that the society is producing unsafe cities. And we have discussed what a feminist urbanist planning might look like. But let's establish the link between the feminist urban planning methods and producing a safe city. When I have a conversation with my mother about wanting to go out at night and give her examples of the different women who already occupy the city at night, whether it is sanitation workers or sex workers or IT workers or factory workers who work at nights, she points out that they're not alone. She says that if you go out in a group, there is safety. It's not the same as going out alone. And I can't argue with that. But here lies the conundrum. Women are constantly told that the city is unsafe, so they shouldn't be going out. Except, if women stop going out, they make the city more unsafe. Because safety is produced by people actually using the city, women using the city. Jane Jacobs, an urban theorist who's written a fantastic book and a landmark book in urban theory called The Death and Life of Great American Cities, talks about eyes on the street. This concept is essentially about natural surveillance, that if you have street vendors, if you have people using the streets, a thriving neighborhood is a safe neighborhood. In India, it's a little more complicated than that. And I think in some of our episodes in the future, we'll discuss this because when you live in a patriarchal society with honor culture, natural surveillance very quickly can become patriarchal surveillance. The principle itself stands. It is the idea that If you design the city in order to encourage women to occupy the city, it will become a safer city. This is the clearest link that we can establish that when we have a city that is unequal, when it limits certain groups of people from being able to access it in the same way, what it results in is an unsafe city. Because if women are not encouraged to come out and occupy public spaces, it renders these public spaces unsafe. There is a direct link between urban design and safety in the city. Now, what do we mean by encouraging women to occupy the city? This brings us to the different factors that go into forming urban policy. The first and foremost that is most obvious to anyone who takes a look at the city, is the physical infrastructure, which is the built environment that makes up the city. It is the buildings, it's the footpaths, it's our roads, it's the provision of public bathrooms, it's the provision of transport infrastructure, it's where our parks are, it's where the park benches are kept. So this forms the physical infrastructure and we'll go into a little bit of how these decisions are made. The second part is the attitudinal factors. Now, what does this mean? You may have a park in your neighborhood, but that does not mean that you feel you're able to use it. Now, the question becomes, who feels comfortable using public spaces and public provisions that are existing in the first place? And why is the case that even when there is provision of certain services, certain sections of the people do not seem to be able to use them? There often seems to be unspoken social tensions that are rife even in the use of public space. Next time you go for a walk in your local neighborhood or a park, pay attention to the people around you. Do you see diversity of background? Do you see different kinds of people who live in the same neighborhood, use public spaces on an equal footing? What makes certain groups more comfortable with accessing public space than others? In addition to attitudinal factors, there are institutional factors. Institutional factors may include rules, norms, bylaws that are passed by the local municipal authority in how the areas in the neighborhood are governed. What timings should the park be open? Where should the bus stop be located? What services and at what frequency are these services going to be offered? institutional factors can range at different levels. They can be at the local level, at the city level, at the state and even central level, housing policies, slum rehabilitation, the provision of basic infrastructural services such as public restrooms, drainage facilities, including recreational facilities, how zoning will affect the area that you live in. All of these are institutional factors, are not devoid of attitudes biases and stereotypes that affect the rest of society these decisions are made by people who also belong to the same society so the way that our physical environment is built is a product of who is actually making these decisions and how they're making these decisions this topic is too large and too vast for us to go into the different ways in which this affects different groups of people in the city in the course of the next few episodes What we hope to answer are questions that you might think about. Why don't women use public spaces the way men do? Why does increasing policing not an answer? Why is it that when we think of violence in the city, we only think about violence in public spaces, but not domestic violence or marital rape? How do women migrant laborers navigate this city? Who is taking care of children when women are going to work? How do sex workers live and experience the city? What are the challenges that trans and non-binary people experience while going about their life in the city? Why don't we have more women Ola or Uber cab drivers? Why is it that certain communities seem to be living in specific areas? How did this come about? All of these are questions that I'm hoping to discuss with the wonderful guests that we're going to have on the series. People who have spent years studying cities and answering these seemingly simple but highly complex questions. I'd like to end this episode by encouraging you to think about what your version of a feminist utopia is. or What a feminist city would be. I'd like to conclude by telling you the story of uh, Rukeya Sakhavad Begum, who wrote this wonderful short story called Sultana's Dream in 1905. It was about a woman waking up to find herself in a utopian town where there were no men out in public. As she describes it, she saw a hundred women walk in the first five minutes down the street. When she asks the first character about this world, she talks about it as a world without war and abundant gardens, where everybody only worked for two hours a day left plenty of time for elaborate hobbies such as embroidery, with well-funded universities, a policy for protecting refugees, and one of scientific advancement. When asked where all the men are, she is told that they were cloistered into mardanas to mind babies to cook and do all kinds of domestic work. In Begum Rukia Sakavat's Utopia, which she describes in Sultana's Dream, what she sees is a world without crime, a place where police and magistrates didn't exist. And there were no jails or carceral structures. It was a land without capital punishment. The notion of the feminist city is not just about infrastructure. It is not just about institutional and changing social mores and norms. It is about re-envisioning what the world might be like if you build it on feminist principles. I'm not suggesting that we cloister our men into mirtanas. The idea is precisely that what does your city look like? What does your world look like? If your values are reflected in the way that it is constructed, please feel free to write to us your thoughts and your feedback and tell us what you think your version of the feminist city might look like. I've also included a number of the readings that I've mentioned in the course of this podcast. Feel free to go through them and write to us if you have any questions or you'd like more information about some of the things that we discussed here. And I hope you join us for the next episode for a first guest interview, we have an exciting lineup of people that we'll be talking to and I hope you join us once again. Thank you so much for being here with us today and I hope you have a great day.